Aloha and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Native Stories is pleased to introduce you to Shah Marire Onge Longan, a Palawan American in digital media focused on being a positive force in the community. So how long have you been in Hawaii? Um, this is my second time living here. I've been here for, it'll be two years this month, December. And prior to that, I lived here from 2001 to 2002. So what is your background as far as uh, your educational and professional? I attended all my formative years of education in Portland, Oregon. I went to Chaminade for a short time, but I didn't graduate from there. I went to school in Tacoma. I didn't finish school and took up working, and I started out in freelance media, web design, graphic design, and it just kind of took off from there. I was never really good at conventional employment, so I picked up jobs here and there and just developed my skill set until I could kind of just randomly fall into jobs throughout my life, but mainly in the field of media and uh, public advocacy work. You were one of the first web designers from Palau, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think so. The first time I got online and started designing websites and really doing anything online at all was the mid-90s. And around that time, it was just mostly Palauan college students, except that I was 12. and Yeah, that was 12 and everyone else was in college. But I was building websites for fun, and they were building websites for class projects. Well, what type of websites were you building at that time? Uh, my first website, I tried building a Palawan music archive. I grew up listening to a lot of Palawan music, and I was excited about it. And it was something I had access to. So really early on, I learned how to transfer cassette tapes onto the computer and then convert those files into real audio, like real player files. And so I tried doing streaming Palawan music on the internet in like, I want to say 1996, 1997, before anyone was really thinking about doing that. And um, yeah, my first websites were about that. And they were making jokes about Palawan politics, which might have been tragic foreshadowing <laughs> about my life later on. <laughs> yeah, jokes about Palawan politics. I. I would write little essays, but again, nobody realized that I was a 12-year-old writing essays. I would, the same essays I would submit to the newspapers, but I was blogging fairly early on too. So it just, it took a while for people to realize that I wasn't as old as they thought I was. Now, both of your parents were from Palau and they migrated to the U.S., correct? Yes, that and, is correct. And then you were born in Oregon. Yes, I was. Is there a large Palawan community in Oregon? Relatively speaking, yes. It's Portland is one of the older Palawan communities outside of Palau. I mean, outside of like the Pacific in general, there was always a Palawan community in like Guam, Saipan. Here in Hawaii, there was a Palawan community even before. But Portland is one of those places. Portland, Susanville, California, uh, Seattle. 
there were places where scholarships were offered and students would go and then students would kind of find their way into living in one place. And once one of us is there, that's where the rest of us are going to gravitate towards, I suppose. So what brought you to Hawaii from Portland? Uh, The first time I had grown up in Oregon, and it's not a secret that Oregon is not the most diverse state in America. I had never really experienced attending school with other islanders, much less other Palauans. And I wanted to experience that. And I wanted to know what it felt like to blend in, to not not necessarily like fit in, but just kind of blend into the background and not stand out. That was a really interesting and important concept for me as an 18-year-old, was what is it like to be like everybody else? So that's... I applied to the first school that was at our school fair from Hawaii, and that was Chaminade, and they accepted me, and I went. What were you planning on majoring in at Chaminade? Uh, It's always pretty much been communications or psychology or a combination of the two with a touch of public administration so that I could... I think somewhere deep down, I always just wanted to find a way to use media to criticize and make jokes about politics. But at some point um, after you came to Hawaii, you also moved back to Palau, or you moved to Palau. And you worked there for a couple of years. Sort of. Yeah. (laughs) I I left here after my first year living here um, when I was in college because I couldn't handle it. I was was born and raised in Oregon, and I didn't have the greatest experience here. So I left and went back to the Northwest, and I stayed there for years. And then in 2011, so I guess almost about a decade later, kind of on a whim, I went to Palau. I didn't really have a plan or anything. I don't usually have plans. I just go do things. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what happened. I looked at my bank account and calculated that I could probably buy a ticket to Palau. And being that I was 28 and I had never been there, I had never seen it, it seemed like a good time to go do it. So I did. And then three weeks later, I came back to the States and sold my car and sent all my worldly possessions to Palau and then went and lived there for about three years. And how was that experience for you coming from mainly from the States and then moving back to your parents? Do you consider Palau to be your homeland as well? Initially, I didn't mm-hmm. because I felt I felt like I was foreign in so many different ways and I was made to feel that way by other people. And so initially, no, I didn't. But I, I knew it was ethnically, culturally my home. But even with all its shortcomings and all the problems that exist, it became home. And now I consider it home. Yeah. It was a rough experience, though. I, I spent my first year kind of struggling to find a way to live there, being so different from people. And that was rough. Also, because I identify as queer was not the greatest thing to show up in Palau as a queer American Palauan kid. So that that was rough. But yeah, it took a while to adjust. And then once I kind of got my footing, I left. 
Yes, speaking of queer, Palau only recently de, uh, decriminalized homosexuality. Yes. Well, yeah. Officially, it was in October 2014. However, some of the senators there say that that's not the case and are very unhappy that that gets said. But, I mean, it wasn't that they did it on purpose. It was kind of <laughs> just in the process of tidying up the penal code. They just happened to kind of decriminalize it. They weren't, no one was trying to make a big human rights statement there. It was kind of a fringe benefit to some housekeeping work. What are the general attitudes uh, in Palau towards homosexual homosexuality in general or in, um, marriage equality? There is no marriage equality. There's a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage in Palau. There's kind of the two schools of thought on it and not a lot in between. It's either for or against, and that's in terms of queer identity as well as uh, gender identity as well as uh, marriage equality issues. I've gotten into arguments online. My mother has gotten into arguments online with people who just don't accept people who identify as queer in whatever sense of the word, or they don't accept uh, marriage equality because we're Christians. And and this is in their words, that we're Christians and we don't do that. And it's kind of, it always kind of threw me off as like strange because if you look at the timeline of things, our people haven't been Christians for really that long by comparison to other people who have been colonized. It's, it wasn't fun. <laughs> it was... It was an ordeal, and it continues to be an ordeal, and I'm getting better at handling it um, without my blood pressure and cortisol levels going through the roof. <laughs> I recently, in the Federated States of Micronesia, there was also the law that tried to ban um, transgender individuals from public employment. Thankfully, that didn't get anywhere. I mean, it's it's really unfortunate that in this day and age with all the things going on in the world, that's something that anyone would focus on. But I'm grateful that everyone else had the good sense to look at that and go, that has no place here. And at the same time, they ended up, if I'm not mistaken, passing a bill that actually provides protections, um, employment protections for people. Or I, I don't know if it's just employment protections or it's overall um, anti-discrimination, but actually does include... I believe, sexual orientation and gender identity. Don't quote me on the gender identity part. I don't know that for sure, but it does at least provide protections for people based on their sexual orientation, and that's really impressive. That's very forward-thinking for populations that sometimes don't feel like they are as forward-thinking as they could be. So getting back into your experience at Shabonad and also being back here in Hawaii, you're also pretty well known, particularly in the Palawan and <laughs> Chamoro communities, for <laughs> for your article on being Micronesian, where you screenshot two years of anti-Micronesian um, hate speech. Basically, that's what it was: hate speech. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that attitude is okay? Well, first off. Um, for our listeners, as a full disclosure, I also wrote an article about Shaw's article coming from a Hawaiian perspective where I basically said that Micronesians as an immigration group 
have been here since 1876, and they were welcomed when they first came here. And this attitude is largely, the, the anti-Micronesian attitude is largely shaped by our colonial experiences, among other things. And yeah, so that's a full disclosure. Um, <laughs> but how has the response been overall since you came up with your article? I do have to clarify that technically it's not my article. It was written by Anita Hofschneider at Civil Beat, and she did a great job. It actually was mentioned as being, I think, one of the most read articles in Civil Beat this year, or most shared on social media. It just happened to be about the work I did. I don't want to say necessarily it was about me, but it was about me having a rough night on Twitter and what I did because I was having a rough night on Twitter. You know, it seems like I should have gotten more backlash and maybe I did. And I just have gotten really good at tuning it out. But for the most part, I would say the feedback and general comments I've gotten back have been very positive. I mean, the civil beat article led to the Al Jazeera program led to the guardian article led to radio New Zealand. Uh, It led to various speaking engagements around the Island. And so it all started with Anita writing in Civil Beat, and the amount of positive feedback I've gotten has been tremendous. We've gotten statements of support and solidarity from Belgium and from Germany and from just places around the world that you wouldn't even think they'd know what Micronesia was, and instead they're sending emails and messages of support. And also just being able to connect with the people I've connected with here locally since it came out has been tremendous because anything I can do to help amplify the voices in my community, the voices that were doing the work before me, because I wasn't actually doing the work. I was just complaining online one night. And that's another thing. Like I, I didn't do this to start a movement or be revolutionary. I was being petty. I was mad. I was hungry. I was fed up. <laughs> I was hungry. <laughs> it's true. There were no nachos. I was hungry. Hungry Shaw is a horrible thing. <laughs> that's that's what it was. It was I was having a rough night and the next thing I knew I my face was on like shared posts on the internet. Well, to be honest, if you look go through Google and type in being Micronesian, your face does show up. Yeah, it's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want people to type it up and be like, Oh God, that's what happens when you're Micronesian? These poor people, like they look like her. Now, for people who are not really familiar with the history of Micronesia or what constitutes Micronesia, what is Micronesia as a geographic and political um, entity? So that's actually a really important question that I wish more people would ask, because when anyone does say Micronesia, that doesn't necessarily mean whatever people think it means. Because there's Micronesia in terms of a region, the same way that there's Melanesia and there's Polynesia. And then there's Micronesia when people are leaving out the first part of it, Federated States of. And that's its own nation. There's the Federated States of Micronesia, and that's a Kofa nation. There's the Republic of Palau. There's the Marshall Islands. There's Nauru. There's Kiribati. Those are all parts of the Micronesian region. But a lot of times, especially here locally, when people say someone is Micronesian, they're usually referring to someone who's from the Federated States of Micronesia. It also becomes a little tricky because in the media and in a lot of data that I've come across since being Micronesia, 
kind of happened. They don't always clarify what they mean or or even really distinguish it properly from like, is it, okay, we see the numbers, but who are you actually talking about? Right, because uh, I know in the academic um, arena, there's people like Dr. Mary Hattori who uses the term greater Micronesia when describing it as a geographic uh, unit. And that includes Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, um, the, well, the Kofa States, and plus Guam. And the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas as well? Yes. So uh, that's like Saipan, Rota, Tinian. There's a lot of us. Most people here, though, when they think of Micronesia, they think of Chuk, Yap. Yeah. Pashai, Pompeii. Yeah. The Pompeii. states in FSM, yeah. Yeah, because um, Chamorros, for example, are Micronesian. Yes. Um, not all Chamorros identify as Micronesian, which is an issue that came up in being Micronesian. Yeah, that's. it's kind of a, a strange thing there where some do, some don't. And I mean, that's not to say that's exclusive to Chamorros. I've met Palauans who are very adamant in saying they're not Micronesian and... That's always a little awkward for me. Yeah, I mean, there's Hawaiians who don't identify as being Polynesian because right. they think of Polynesian as being Samoan or Tongan. Right. And also, even the Maori, there's some Maori people who don't identify either as being Pacific Islanders. Right. Uh, that's another issue altogether. Um, <clears throat> for our listeners, when we talk about Kofa, what is Kofa? COFA, the Compact of Free Association, which sounds like it's a singular, but there's actually three different COFAs because uh, Federated States of Micronesia has their own compact. Republic of the Marshall Islands has their own. And the Republic of Palau has their own. And I'm obviously better versed in the Palauan one because that's I'm Palauan. That's generally what affects me and what I've studied. At risk of getting maybe a little too political. Please get more political. Okay, so dating back to, well, we won't go too back, back too far. During World War I, a lot of Pacific regions or Pacific Island nations actually fell under the colonization of Germany. Germany was doing this whole playing a real-life version of risk and just kind of building up their Pacific theater there. But with the end of it and not really doing so well in that war, they kind of had to, you know give back those islands or give them to other people. And the Micronesian, Micronesian region then fell under Japan and we were part of the Imperial Japanese Empire. And so they actually kind of built their own colony that started out as a militarized colony, eventually became a civilian colony. And that lasted through World War II, but then they didn't do so well in that. So then we fell under the United States because that's also when the United Nations was formed. And in falling under the United States, they formed the trust territory of the Pacific Islands. So we became a U.S. colony. But of course, the United States isn't supposed to have colonies. And also um, in the 60s, the United Nations put out uh, Resolution 1514, which says you can't have colonies anymore. Give them back to the people. So that's when they started developing the idea of freely associated states. Like we can't we can't colonize you, but we can get you to kind of self-colonize and, and choose to follow us. And that's when things like um, the Solomon Report that came out in like 1962, 1963 were written. That was commissioned by President JFK um, and written by Anthony Solomon. And it's a blueprint for how to 
essentially give the Micronesian region so much support in terms of building our infrastructure and building up the people that we have no choice but to continue relying on you. And um, there are supporting documents behind that as well. There's a CIA memo that came out in the 70s, I think maybe 10 years later, um, that basically states the same thing. And between that period, there was also thoughts of having um, the state of Hawaii annex all of the Micronesian region. So, I mean, instead of us coming over as migrants, we would have just been, you know, citizens, like non-resident citizens of the state of Hawaii. So it was, the compacts allow people from the Kofa states to travel freely to the United States. We don't require visas to work here. Um, we can join the military. Our islands use U.S. dollars, the U.S. post system. They're still basically like little colonies. And in turn, the United States gets to use our islands for either target practice or military bases. I mean, they weren't necessarily meant to uh, benefit us the way people think. And that's why we really don't have the benefits people think we have. But right. try not to get too political. <laughs> right. Because people need to also remember that uh, Micronesia as a region was used for, what was it, 60 atomic uh, nuclear testing um, Yep, sites. that would be the Republic of the Marshall Islands. That was that was done to them by the United States, who felt that as part of the trust territory, your land belongs to us. Why can't we do this? And I have, like, in this, I think it's the CIA memos, um, it actually spells out, like, the strategic purpose of each island. It's ugly because on the outside and on the face of it, it looks like we were given so much and we have so much by way of being able to come to the United States. But at the same time, it's also, oh, P.S. and by the way, uh, your islands are effectively ours, but not really. They're still yours. They're just yours, but ours. But I mean, I guess the powers that be have never been particularly good at giving things back to their original owners. Yeah, you're speaking to the choir here. Yeah, uh, as far as the decolonization, 1514, uh, decolonization resolution, that also for people who are from Hawaii should be aware of as well. Because yes, in 1946, Hawaii was also declared a non-self-governing territory. And we were supposed to have been given choices of um, such as being a commonwealth territory, yeah, free association, mm -hmm. or independence. But the United States never gave us... Well, they gave us one choice. Yeah. <laughs> they forgot. Well, I mean, it's the same thing that kind of happened with Palau. We had... I, I don't know, it must have been at least a dozen votes on, like, the plebiscite and becoming freely associated. But none of the votes counted until they voted in favor of the U.S. <laughs> like, wait. <laughs> That's not how this works at all. Yeah. Like, you had, Palau had, what, 13 votes? Um, it was quite a few, yeah. Until? They said, okay, fine. <laughs> But there's a lot of rumors as well about um, Palau's first president, how he was assassinated. That's... Oh, there are a lot of rumors about a lot of rumors about a lot of rumors. <laughs> yeah, it's that whole era from, I guess, 
maybe the late 70s with the first constitutional convention in Palau. From that time through basically when they approved the compact, that was kind of an ugly time in Palauan history that I, I only realized um, in the last few years that a lot of my fellow Palauan Americans don't necessarily know about. And even a lot of Palauans just in my generation don't necessarily know about. And so I've tried to do more and more work speaking on that because if they're going to keep referring to us as the future and like the future leaders, I think it would help to kind of have a better idea in terms of navigating the pitfalls of our past. Right. Uh, I've read the Solomon Report. Exactly. Yes. It purposely creates a dependency relationship with the United States. The ethnological zoo? Yes. Actually, I encourage everyone to be reading through the report, and I'll also link a website to the report in this podcast. Now, uh, excuse me. going back to the Being Micronesian uh, article that you were featured in, uh-huh. what are some examples of anti-Micronesian actions have you experienced? Um, personally. Like things from the threat? Oh, personally. Personally. Uh, okay. Like so comments and, yeah. All right. I do have to explain that... Um, my experience as a Micronesian is a little bit different because I don't look like what people assume a stereotypical Micronesian would look like. I'm, I essentially am passing. Like I just kind of blend in as, Oh, okay. She's just kind of ambiguously ethnic and has a lot of tattoos. So nobody, including my own people really, (laughs) um, (laughs) <laughs> can really single me out <laughs> as being um, Palauan or Micronesian. No, I had this problem with like just even in Palauan gatherings or around Palauans, around other Micronesians, they just kind of, they assume that I'm just kind of generically local of some <laughs> sort, which tends to be funny because that's where I get to hear the most just nonsensical things. I've worked in different jobs, but I've always worked downtown since I've moved here. And so um, we were at Bishop Square and it was just kind of some people who there's like a smoking area there. And so I was in the area and it's just people from different offices kind of congregate there and smoke and talk story. And at random, one of them, their friend runs up and starts telling a story and he starts going off about some Micronesians and something that happened over the weekend. And I stopped them in mid conversation and was like, yeah, so you know, I'm like fully Micronesian, right? And they all kind of stopped. And you know, like when a puppy's confused and it kind of tilts its head, like what? The whole group kind of did a collective puppy head tilt. And then the guy who had run up, who wasn't initially part of the group, the the like friend, he kind of looked at me and he was, and if you know that area, Bishop Square, like there's a bunch of food places along the stretch there. So he kind of looked at me and he's like, oh, which one of the restaurants you work at? And I don't know if he meant that somehow to be like insulting to me or if he just really thought because I'm Micronesian, I worked in food service. And so I kind of looked at him with my own confused puppy head tilt and was like, no, I, I'm actually the gallery director of this art 
gallery right here. And he kind of laughed and was like, no, seriously, where do you work? And I'm like, no. I. And so I proceeded to walk over and unlock the gallery. <laughs> and that was kind of a, oh, my goodness. And I'm not as cute now because I had surgery. And my face is a little crooked and puffy. But before, I had kind of a quasi-cute face. And so... <laughs> <laughs> I always have to kind of clarify that because I do look different from the time period where I tell this story. I was out smoking a cigarette and some random guy, I guess, was trying to talk to me and I just wasn't having it. And so I am heavily tattooed. I have sleeves on both arms. And he's like, so what are you? Are you like Hawaiian or Samoan? And I'm like, no, dude, I'm I'm micro. <laughs> And he just kind of looked at me and I have never in my life seen, he's kind of what you would imagine, like just your big kind of intimidating looking Samoan man. I mean, he was handsome and everything. He he seemed like he would have been a cool guy, mm-hmm. but he just, he clutched his pearls so fast. Wait, what? Wait, you don't, you don't even look micro. You're too pretty to be micro. And I'm like, yeah, well, you didn't look like a bigot either, but here we are. <laughs> And I couldn't really think of anything clever to say after that, so I just walked off. (laughs) But it's my experiences are more like that versus the outright discrimination that some of my friends and relatives have gotten where, I mean, I have friends who wear the skirts because that's, for their islands, that's part of their custom. Like, Palauans, we don't have the skirts. But they would wear the skirts and they would get yelled at in public or people would treat them badly in the store. They wouldn't get good service in the stores and... Versus me, I'm kind of like undercover micro. (laughs) So I'm just kind of standing there and like listening to people and nobody really says anything unless I stop the conversation. I mean, I guess it's different now because my face got plastered on so many things. So I guess it's not so undercover micro now. But that, that tends to be my experience versus a lot of people with outright discrimination. Mine is more... I'm going to sit here and listen to you talk bad about my people to my face because you have no idea that I'm one of them. Some of the comments that I've read online or have heard even at Hawaiian events are things like she she dresses like a micro Mm -hmm. or uh, they make fun of the gold teeth that Mm -hmm. some Micronesians have. And also, you know, to clarify for... To clarify to our listeners, particularly those who are Hawaiian, I just also want to say that, you know, when I wrote my article and I got feedback from the Hawaiian community, uh, most of it was positive, but some of it had to do with why did I mention the fact about the skirts? And one of the reasons why I mentioned the fact about the skirts is because Hawaiians also used to wear the type of skirts. And in fact, we probably brought over that to Micronesia when Hawaiian missionaries began to Christianize um, like Apiang and other places in the Kiribati and what is now the Marshall Islands. Is this funny how colonizers, they just play play us off of each other instead of on them? But I also know... it's it's in their it's in their best interest to keep us fighting because the longer they can keep us fighting the easier they can come and steal our artifacts and take our things and and gentrify parts of our cultures and militarize our islands we don't have to worry about them they're fighting each other 
sneak in and do what we need to do. But then when you call them out on it, you're the one with the problem. You're the one who, why are you so angry? Why are you so bitter? Why can't you just move on? When these are the same people that are nuking your islands, that are ignoring um, climate change data, that are stealing your artifacts and selling them on eBay. But no, um, they are the victims. We're just the people that are complaining. We're the activists. We're the angry natives, right? Do you get the snowflakey social justice workers? (laughs) Do you get that also within the Micronesian community? Where um, there's a certain level of, oh, you can't say things like that. Well, because I, I, I've come to realize that this is kind of an across-the-board islander thing. Mm-hmm. Is that, at least in the greater Micronesian community, to complain about something like that, to, to speak up, is an act of disrespect. Yes. And so, because we do understand that this is essentially a host island this is not our home Mm -hmm. this is a place where like we in fact have settled as well a lot of us realize that and i think that's one of the things people don't understand is that a lot of micronesian people acclimate versus assimilate and so in keeping with our cultures our customs our our traditional like attitudes and how we look at things it's to speak up against even the most blatant discrimination and hate speech is still an act of blatant disrespect on our part. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people can't do that. They can't bring themselves to be like that. That's They were raised to not do that. And so I don't know necessarily within the greater Micronesian community. I got more of this from within the Palawan community. Some of the older people would be like, you know, you need to step back from this. You're making waves. Don't make waves. And I mean, even some younger people would be like, well, you know, this is what happens when you're an immigrant community. Well, number one, we're not immigrants. You know, everyone gets it. You just need to put your head down and do what's right because the next the next wave is going to come in and they'll take our place. Well, no, everybody's here already. The only next wave coming are climate change refugees. So that would be more of us. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to tell people. <laughs> the next wave, I'm like, there is no, no, literally everyone was already here and then we came back. And the next wave coming is more of us. So, like, we need to get this kind of, we need to get a grip on this, get, a, like, a better handle on it, because this is not a good way for people to live. It's not healthy. It's not safe. It doesn't, it's not beneficial to anybody, especially when groups of people are being pitted against each other, when ultimately we all have the same people trying to hold all of us down and who are being a detriment to us in terms of how they're affecting our natural resources, our people, our cultures, our heritage, all of it. We all have that same enemy who's trying to copyright our words. And so it's it's one of those things that boggles my mind, especially because I wasn't raised here. I was raised in Oregon. And in Oregon, our community of islanders was fairly small, especially in the 80s, early 90s. So I never knew that anti-Micronesian sentiment was a thing. I I came here when I was 18 and it blew my mind. And I was, I mean, I think I I can safely say like I was horrified by it. Yeah, I've heard from other Micronesians that the first time that they experienced racism and Mm -hmm. sexism was here in Hawaii. It's, 
it's a rough thing. I mean, I grew up, at least the community I grew up within was, there's like my little Palau microcosm, and then there's the greater Micronesian, like slightly bigger microcosm around that. And then there's the even bigger, like pan Pacific Islander microcosm around that. But it's still a small group of people living in Portland, Oregon, and everyone knew everyone else. Okay, the Tongans are having a party this weekend, and we're all going to go and show face and do this and help them out because we're going to clean up after their party, and then we're going to head to, like, the Chamorro party that's, like, the after party. And then next weekend, <laughs> the Marshallese are doing this, but after their barbecue, we're going to have, like, a concert with the Palans. That I guess because there were so few of us, we understood that sticking together made us stronger. Mm-hmm. Versus here, it's different because it is an island and it is a home to, it has its own indigenous population. And then there's like the mixes of people. It's hard to, there's no sense of we're all islanders. We need to stick together because literally everyone on the island is an islander to some extent. I mean, except for the people who aren't. But that's another story and we can talk about Airbnb another day. (laughs) No, that's a very important point. Uh, in addition to that, um, climate change, as was mentioned earlier, it's going to affect mm-hmm. us. It's going to yeah, affect us in a absolutely. big way. Yeah. And Micronesians have a diaspora population. Now, oh, yeah. Native Hawaiians, we also have a very large diaspora population. I mean, you know, fun fact is about half the Native Hawaiian population doesn't live in Hawaii anymore. I believe that, yeah. Sounds... I think I've met, in the course of my life, more Hawaiians outside of Hawaii than in it. So how do we build these networks that are able to connect us? Um, I know, for example, when we talk about Micronesians and within the Hawaiian community, Mao of Satawa is the person who helped us revive our navigational um, knowledge. I mean, if it wasn't for Mao, the Hokulea wouldn't have been able to go to Tahiti in 1978. But beyond Mao, and we have to look beyond Mao, I think, because, yeah, we're all... (laughs) We're all in the same boat as far as the politics in Washington is concerned, as far as climate change, as far as economic social justice. Right. Dealing with economic imperialism. Mm. And transnational corporations. Yikes, yeah. It's... um. It's weird because, like, like you said, we are all in the same boat, and it's, and and it's that one general broad-spanning group that's trying to shoot holes in our canoes. Okay, so if we're in the same boat and we're fighting and they're trying to sink our our boat, how does this work? How are we going to survive if we're fighting each other and not them? Because I. I feel like this is a really obvious statement that I'm about to make. Wouldn't we get more done if we were, I don't know, cooperating and having a louder, more, like a stronger voice? We can fight amongst each other when that work is done. 
But first things first, let's go fight them, then figure out our mess. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like dealing with family. In- I can talk. I can talk badly about my siblings because they're my siblings, but you cannot say a word about my siblings because you will have to fight all of us. In my head, it's like we should all be kind of following that because that's what we do in our personal lives. Mm-hmm. But instead, we're letting the person who's talking bad about our siblings, we're being like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, no, you never agree with that person. That's the person we go and like 20 of us versus the two of them. Yeah, there's a certain element of Stockholm Syndrome within our Pacific yes. Island communities where they, I mean, this is Pacific Islanders as well as Filipinos for that matter. And I can say that because I'm also part Filipino. Um, <clears throat> where there's a tendency, particularly people who have wealth, where they identify with the colonizer or the former colonizer more intimately than with their own people. Yeah. I, yeah, I tend to group them in with the self-hating people of color. Because, I mean, that's, ultimately, that's kind of what it is. To me, at least. I mean, and everything I say, that's, like, my opinion. Like, I am by no means a representative of the Micronesian community, the Palau community, or really any community for that matter. I just speak out of my own experiences and observations. But it just, that's kind of... When I see my own people and they so readily side with groups that are so obviously against our best interests, I don't see a difference between that and them just outright saying, well, I hate that I'm a Palau and I wish I could be like them. Really, what is the difference? Because you're siding with a person who's saying that thing about you. The logic there is beyond me. I don't... The other thing, too, is... um coming from a Micronesian perspective or specifically a Palawan perspective, uh, you had taken Hawaiian studies classes before, right? Yeah, at Shamanada. That's actually, at least when I went, it was a um, requirement for everybody's like first uh, quarter, or at least your first semester was that you would take Hawaiian studies. Because I'm just going to plug this in, because Shamanad in many ways is more progressive than UH. Yeah. So, at any rate, um, going back to the I'm not arguing. (laughs) (laughs) But um, from that perspective and having taken Hawaiian studies, what are some of the commonalities you see between what you learned of Hawaiian culture and your interactions with the Hawaiian community and with Palawan culture and the Palawan community? Um, I think the biggest takeaway, and I think it was one of the things that made everything about living here the first time, as shocking as it was, is that we are so rooted in our communities. I mean, in theory, we're we're more our community than we are ourselves. It's when our community is succeeding and thriving, we personally are succeeding and thriving. When our community is is faced with obstacles and, and going through some hard times, so are we. That's We are our communities. Versus, was it standard Western individualistic mentalities? Mm-hmm. We're about doing what's best for all of us, not just what's best for, you know, him, her, me, you, whoever's pocketbook. And I think that's that had a lot to do with what made the anti-Micronesian hate really hard for me to process. And also because we have the similar, where... 
like in Hawaiian studies, they were talking about the concept of, of aloha and how it's rooted in the culture, a sense of being hospitable, being loving, being welcoming. And the same goes for us. I was brought up where if you have a guest and they come to your home, you offer them the best food in your home. And if you don't have the best food, you will find a way to offer them the best thing that you have because they're your guests. You can eat whatever is there like on the side after, but you take care of your guests first. And so to see those similar values, but then experience real life differently was really weird. It was kind of like a weird Twilight Zone thing for me. I know this is what's supposed to happen, but this is what's happening. And I feel like I just landed in Bizarro World. I think just that sense of family and community and welcoming, the hospitality side of it, the the putting people first, the reverence for our elders. Because mm-hmm. I've seen Micronesian elders get treated just as badly as anyone else. And to see that happen to someone who I would think of as a grandparent, that's, how can you see something like that and it doesn't hurt you? Or how can you talk to someone who's, who's an elder and, and be okay with yourself after that? Those are, it was, it was a strange thing to experience. In Hawaiian culture, we, of course, we revere the kupuna, the elders. And traditionally, we also revered, um, children as well same yeah and it's because you know when you're an elder you're getting close to becoming an ancestor and when you're a child you just came from the world of from the ancestors. being an ancestor yeah, yeah. so no i that what you just said deeply resonates with me because even as a hawaiian i'm also having trouble with um with that because I read Hawaiian language newspapers from the 19th century. I know our values back and forth. I know I, I know what our culture, ideally, how it sees itself. But then, yeah, um, the foster care system, about 50% of the children in our foster care system in Hawaii are Native Hawaiians. And... The rest are predominantly Micronesian and Filipino. So, yeah, there's a disconnect with our values and... Our practices. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's Yeah, there is. And it's... On one hand, I get angry about it because we should know better. And then on the other hand, I get heartbroken over it because I understand the generational trauma behind it. And so it's, I try to always look at it the way my dad explained it, that people do the best they can with what they have. And I try not to get so over the top angry, but sometimes it's hard not to be angry, especially I think maybe because I do work as an advocate, I I do work both with the Micronesian community and with the Native Hawaiian community. And I see the things the children go through. I see the things that the elders go through. And and it's it's disheartening. Like, there are days where it's kind of... It's hard not to be discouraged. But at the same time, if I let it discourage me from doing the work, then I would feel like I'm not upholding my value system, too. So you just kind of have to keep 
trudging forward no matter how hard it is. Yeah, it's a catch-22 because by ignoring it, it, you're part of the problem too. You're being a hypocrite. Right. But it is, yeah, as a community, as a member of the community, it's our kuleana, our responsibility to try to live um, our values. (laughs) Or else, who are we? We're not exactly yeah. that's and I think that's a kind of a guiding idea behind a lot of my work is that there are times where I feel like I don't want to do the work I do anymore because it does take its toll on you day in day out you're seeing the same thing happen day in day out you're arguing with the same people in your own community who are saying some of the most nonsensical they're saying things that are just you can't understand how someone would be so for someone who's against them. And it gets, it's exhausting because it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you stop doing the work, who are you? What are you? What, what purpose are you serving? And I think because my dad was heavily involved in a lot of activism work when I was really young, I feel like it is my obligation to do these things, whereas maybe other people might not. I know a lot of people older than me who just tell me to put my head down and focus on being a better Palawan and stop getting involved in these things. And I argue with them on the internet too. And I have to go back and remember that my what my dad keeps telling me is that it's not my responsibility to change people's minds. It's my responsibility to put out the information identify my allies and mobilize them because I'm not the one who's going to change things. I'm just, I'm here to be the vase and I'm just trying to identify who the flowers are. Can you repeat that for our listeners? Because I think that's a very heavy point. Because I struggle a lot with how I utilize my resources and how I spend my time in terms of my activism, my dad had to sit me down and kind of explain that my job, my responsibility, it's not, I'm not here to be the change maker. And there's nothing wrong with that because my skill set is getting the news out, getting, informing people of things. And so being that that is my skill set, my job is not to change minds, but to present information, identify my allies and mobilize them. Because it's the allies and the people that I meet in doing the work that I do who are going to take those ideas and implement change and shift paradigms. And I'm just here to be the vase and they're the flowers. I think that's an extremely important point, uh, particularly with people who do most of their activism through Facebook and other social media platforms. Is Mm -hmm. that, yeah, if you're focusing your activism and changing minds you're gonna die angry yes that's what my dad told me he's like you're just you're gonna be so frustrated all the time because you will never ever change the mind of someone who is determined to not not learn might actually do more harm because it's going to reinforce that person's worldview exactly yeah i mean if the amount of energy and effort it takes to be so deliberately and willfully ignorant in our time, that's a lot of effort that they put in because 
knowledge and information is literally everywhere. It is, it's, it's in your hand. You're holding your phone. You are holding a world of information and you're choosing to ignore it. That's, that's effort on your part to stay in the dark. You can't change the mind of someone who's putting all their energy into staying ignorant. And so the more you try to do that, the more you're wasting time and resources and energy and effort that you could be finding people who do understand what you're doing and who do have the ideas and the means to make change. Yeah, that's a huge paradigm shift that people really need to embrace, especially in the current um, the current political struggle. Yeah. That's, I think that's why my dad brought it up is, I mean, he can see when I get so frustrated and just, I, I get to those points. And I know part of it is that I don't, I don't do self-care as much as I should. And I don't take care of myself and let go of the things that upset me the way I, I could be. But at the same time, it's, I do want the world to be better. I do have that kind of naive sense of, well, you could be good, even though I know there are plenty of people who choose not to be good and that's their choice. And I guess I have to follow my dad's tact of if I may not agree with your decisions, but I have to respect them because you're not going to change your mind. So, yeah. A friend of mine told me recently that even Gandhi gave up on Hitler. (laughs) Well, that says it all right there. <laughs> that that is that speaks volumes. You could write entire entire books just about that. And so, if that's the case, what are some ways that people can become better allies, particularly to uh, micro, the Micronesian community here, as well as to the Micronesian LGBT community in general? Learn. Read things. Listen to things. When people are are sharing their experiences, listen to them and, and think about them. One of the things that um, we had talked about in, like, ally training once was how, um, especially with the rampant Islamophobia that goes on, if you see a woman who's being harassed, someone's bothering her. If you're brave enough, if you're comfortable enough, just go stand by her. Stand by her, strike up conversation. It throws off the people who are harassing her and it shows that she's not alone. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're willing and able and comfortable to do something like that, do that. If you don't want to like sit down and like learn the history or I mean, if you're not the reading type, listen to podcasts. I could recommend a couple. If you're into reading there's a wealth of knowledge on the internet. I'm sure we could hook you up with those in terms of learning about the history. Go meet people. Go. It's social media. There's really nothing that you can't find on the internet at this point. I mean, you can find someone who's interested in pretty much anything online. So search for a hashtag. Check hashtag being Micronesian. See who responds. Respond to them. Strike up conversation. Follow new people. Being an ally doesn't mean you necessarily have to show up at every protest and every every single event and every you can start out just by being willing to acknowledge your own 
implicit biases or prejudices about things and then moving from there. One of the trainings we recently had at work was just specifically to discuss implicit bias because you don't necessarily know it's there. So start looking at how you view things. That's probably the easiest way or like the easiest place to start. A little introspection. I think especially for uh, Hawaiians and other Polynesians, yeah, you need to learn. You need to read and not just read books from, you know, um, your pastor or from the Bible. And I'm not saying that I have problems with people who are Christian. I'm just saying that you need to also look into things like Austronesian languages and DNA, because if you can understand that, you'll, under, you'll understand that Polynesia in itself is a name that was given to us by... The Irville. Yeah. Before, Polynesia consisted of most of the Pacific at one time. But then they divided it up as European colonizers began to take chunks of the Pacific to add to their empires. Their collections. <laughs> and Micronesians speak Austronesian languages. Polynesians, we speak Austronesian languages. We're linguistically and genetically, we're cousins. Yeah. And, yeah, and as... If people actually study their, their, their full histories, they will find a lot of times it's not just that we're, like, genetically and linguistically cousins. It's that, oh, wait, those people were on my island at some point and I share blood with them, like, actual blood, traceable blood. I mean, I think we've discussed it before where there are Hawaiian families... Their families have roots in the Marshall Islands and Kiribati. Yes, actually, um, because the first wave of Micronesian immigrants in 1876, there was um, from 1876 to 1883, those were the major waves of Micronesians. Over 2,000 Micronesians and Rutamans um, from Fiji came over to Hawaii. Yeah, three fourths of those people didn't leave. And they intermarried mostly with Hawaiians. And there's a lot of Hawaiians who think that their their tutu or the great tutu was Hawaiian, but actually, no. Um, he was from another Pacific island, probably Kiribati or Utaman or somewhere in the Marshalls. And also, historically, the connections between our islands and um, parts of Micronesia, as well as Melanesia goes way back. I mean, um, there was a time that King Kamehameha IV was contemplating uh, placing a protectorate over parts of Kiribati. And there were petitions from Kiribati asking King Kalakaua to declare a protectorate because they didn't want to be taken over by the British. So there's a lot of the historical connections as well as deep ancestral connections that goes back 6,000 years. And that's something we need to also remember that uh, Micronesians are, yeah, they're cousins in so many different ways. They're not, you know, totally 
the thing that has really annoyed me with some of the posts that I've seen on the article that you were featured in is as if Micronesians were, I mean, they use the term cockroach in some of the, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, Micronesians overthrew the queen. Oh wait, they didn't. Right. I think a really good example was that one of the responses to the article was a woman, I think she's some, I think she's here on Oahu. She responded to the article and was just very angry because she said that as a Hawaiian woman, she didn't have any good feelings or thoughts about Micronesian people. And as it turned out, like after that was published, like her statement was published (laughs) on social media, her own family came out and came for her saying, you do realize we're Micronesian, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so I, I felt like that was just such a, it was such a good example of what happens when you don't know the histories, when you haven't when you haven't taken the time to really look into the issues, but you decide to be reactive right off the bat and just knee-jerk reactions to things. I I mean, I struggle with it too, but I do make an effort as much as possible to try to understand a thing before I say something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm human. I make mistakes. But generally speaking, I do try to... To and, kind of understand what I'm saying before I say it. And you know the thing, too, that has kind of also annoyed me is a sentiment that, well, there's two things. Um, one is there's a sentiment among some of the people who commented on social media that oh, Hawaiians are not the ones who are doing this, who are making those kind of comments, which is not true. There are Hawaiians. And I've been to Hawaiian events and I've heard Micronesian jokes. And if, heck, you can just turn on the radio in the morning. You can hear Micronesian jokes from some of the DJs who are actually part Hawaiian. And two, that sentiment that, well, every immigration immigrant group experiences discrimination. So, Well, that makes it okay. Right. Like, <laughs> how is that? <laughs> why is it acceptable that... Oh, because they're immigrant groups, so we can make fun of them, harass them, beat them up. And yeah, it was it was a really interesting um, point that was made earlier, like early on, um, shortly after being Micronesian kind of came out. That the things that people have said, if they said it, well, for starters, it's highly unlikely that they would say it about other ethnic groups. But also, if they were to say it about other ethnic groups outside of Hawaii, they would be unemployed. Mm-hmm. They would be publicly shamed. But here it's, ah, uh, why can't you take a joke? Well, I don't know. Maybe because I don't think it's funny whenever you threaten to, like, hunt for us. Yeah. Threaten genocide. <laughs> or, or say there's going to be a purge. Yeah, or totally just dehumanize Micronesians. By saying that they're just nothing but cockroaches. Especially on public, well, on social media groups like Stolen Stuff Hawaii, where the, <sighs> which is infamous for, yeah, like groups like Stolen Stuff Hawaii, for example, on Facebook. And I'm just going to call it out. 
if you say anything about Latinos, if you say anything about African Americans in that group, oh, the moderator, he'll kick you out. But you say something about Micronesians, if you call them cockroaches, if you say, oh, we should just kill them or send them back to their island, that's an acceptable comment. I mean, there's literally. I've seen him say, like, watch the racist language. I, I think occasionally they'll delete things, but. I don't know that they necessarily like really like come down on people for it like they would others, I guess. I don't particularly follow that group, but I've had other people besides um, what I've seen in the article. I have other people who had forwarded me screenshots from that group. And it's horrible. It's really horrible. I mean... When I hear people being referred to as cockroaches, I just think of Rwanda with the Tutsis and Hutus. Cause right. And that's that's how they justified genocide was you dehumanize them to the point where, like, it's just a cockroach. What's wrong with killing it? And that's a playbook that's been used for the last 300 years where you dehumanize. Oh, yeah. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Uh, Irish people were dehumanized through cartoons. African-Americans. Um, Native Hawaiians, especially in the 1890s. The queen was always depicted as an African-American with big lips, wearing a grass skirt, and speaking very poor English. Even though the queen was highly educated, she dined at Buckingham Palace. She, she was and she was educated by American missionaries. But no, in these depictions of her in the 19th century, no, she was an African-American with big lips and couldn't speak English properly. So, yeah, and same thing with um, the Jews right before the Holocaust. They're depicted as rats in Nazi propaganda. And I'm in our current uh, socio-political climate. It's it's made a comeback. Uh, which one, the nasty cartoons or Nazis? All of the above. <laughs> I know, I can't believe it's 2018 I, we have to talk about Nazis. Anyway, um, going back to the Micronesian um, podcast, Micronesian Hawaii podcast, how has the reaction from Native Hawaiians generally been since the article? Positive? Overall, it's actually been really positive. I... I had an opportunity to speak on a panel at the Native Hawaiian Conference, and that was actually a really amazing experience for me, especially because I I was actually scared to go in to the conference. But it turned out to be really positive and just the opportunity to amplify the voices of the people who are already doing the work and and network and connect with people who maybe weren't necessarily so interested in what was going on and seeing them become more interested, seeing them take a stand, seeing them kind of open up their eyes and, and really realize what's been going on and what other populations living here locally are experiencing has been really positive. Yeah, I know that for... Well, except for the ones who didn't like the skirt comment, uh, most Native Hawaiians I talked to, they were not aware of how bad the discrimination was. Right. And I think that was a very important point. 
in that article that you're featured in. Because even for myself, reading through two years of messages and comments, it was just staggering. And I'm just, I kept on thinking to myself, how would I feel if I were still a youth and having to deal with this on a daily basis? Because being Hawaiian, I can totally relate to having to prove your existence on a daily basis. And justify it. Yeah, and justify it. And to justify uh, your views, like, well, and it's this. It comes to the same concept. Even though we're people of color, we don't use the N word the way that someone in the black community would use it. We can't. It's not our word. We didn't pay for it with blood, the way they have paid for it. That's their word. They use it. But just because one member of the community says, "Oh, it's okay for my." white, brown, Asian, whatever friend to say it doesn't actually mean it's okay for that person to say it. And the same applies in these situations. On Halloween, and I added this to the Being Micronesian thread on Twitter, um, there was a Samoan man who dressed up as a Micronesian for Halloween. And he was like the Micronesian savage. And he was like, well, my friend is, is micro. And he thought it was funny. And... Your point being, your friend does not speak for the entire community, though. If you guys want to joke amongst that, amongst, like joke with that amongst yourselves, do that in private then, because apparently that's okay with him there. But that still comes off as an insult to everybody else. Yes. That's still degrading. That's still incredibly offensive to everybody else. It's not that person's place to speak on behalf of all of us and say, okay, you can go out and dress as the savage Micronesian for Halloween because it is okay. Like, no. No, it's not. Same principle applies. We don't use that one word. You don't get to do this. It's, it's, it seems like such a basic concept, and yet it's so lost on so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I just don't understand the rationale of people, how they can think that a certain type of behavior is acceptable. Like exactly what you're saying, the um, the savage Micronesian. <clears throat> and speaking of terminologies, if a non-Micronesian called you a micro, would that be considered offensive to you personally? Or would it depend on the context? For me personally, I, I don't know because nothing like that has ever happened. I don't know how I would react, honestly. I think I would just be really confused. Mm-hmm. Because I, I'm so non-passing, or I have been throughout my life, that whenever anyone gets it close to right, I get kind of excited, which is really <laughs> unique to me. But I mean, I've been in situations where I was with a, uh, I, I've been around Palawan people who are talking, they're speaking Palawan about me in front of me, in front of me. <laughs> And I just, all I can do is kind of stand there awkwardly and let them finish talking and then reply in Palawan. At which point everyone just kind of jaws on the floor and then suddenly they're, they've disappeared. Like, wait, what happened? <laughs> but so I, I honestly can't, I don't know how I would respond if some, something like that happened just because it's usually me having to say that I'm Micronesian. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happened on my way to the Native Hawaiian conference. I was in a lift and I was explaining to the driver, he was asking where I was going and what I was doing. And 
He's like, oh, Native Hawaiian Conference. Are you Native Hawaiian? I'm like, oh, no, I'm I'm actually, no, I'm just going as a speaker. And I didn't initially say I was Micronesian. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, but we're going, um, it's a Pacific Islands panel. There's going to be discussions about Micronesians. And then he proceeded to talk about Micronesians. And I let him finish talking. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I mean. What was I he saying about Micronesians? He was, and he wasn't like directly saying it like this is his point of view, but he was saying how like, well, you know, people here look at Micronesians like, you know, they're all really lazy and, you know, they're a burden on taxpayers and just really all the stereotypical things. Mm-hmm. And when he was done talking, I kind of just took a moment and then said, so I'm actually going because I'm one of the Micronesians. And he got quiet for a second. He went, oh, well... Oops. That's cool. I am too. <laughs> he's my he was Micronesian? He he's he's uh part Chamorro. <laughs> and so it was a really <laughs> awkward moment of like, wait, okay, so I what? <laughs> and those are my experience but that's like kind of that's that's pretty it's indicative that like that's my experiences as a Micronesian is having conversations like that where it's just no one can tell. And I seem to have these conversations with my Lyft and Uber drivers a lot mm-hmm. because they'll always ask, like they'll see my tattoos or something. And I mean, a lot of people don't know that at least in Palau and actually throughout all of Micronesia, we actually do have our own really rich history of tattoos. Mm-hmm. And so they see my tattoos and they just assume that I'm some sort of mixed Polynesian. And then I have to explain, like, no, I'm a Micronesian. I'm, I'm a micro. I mean. The tattoos that you wear, those are tradi- mm-hmm. mostly traditional um, Micronesian design tattoos, right? Um, tr- I, I never really say traditional because our... At least in Palau, our tattoo customs, they were banned. By the Japanese? By the Germans and Japanese, kind mm-hmm. of in between those two eras. And because the last tattoo artists passed away, I didn't have a traditional Palauan tattoo apprenticeship. So I had to do basically all of my cultural and historical studies sort of on my own and in Palau, outside and inside Palau. And then I got my technical apprenticeship in the States uh, for most of my tattoos. However, then there's my left arm and that my left arm was tattooed while I was working in a shop that was a Polynesian tattoo shop. Mm -hmm. So when I left the shop, that was kind of like my my farewell. Okay, well, she's leaving. So now we're going to tag up her arm. But my hand, my left hand is a Palauan, traditionally inspired Palauan design. And there's Palauan motifs in it. But it's kind of also, a, it's like a pan-Pacific fusion. There's Melanesian motifs, Polynesian motifs, Micronesian motifs, all in one arm. But my right arm, the one that I initially tattooed myself, that one is a mix of Palauan and also Yapis uh, motifs. Right, because you have uh, a Yapis ancestor. Yes, I'm one-eighth one Yapis. Mm. And so I like to honor my mom's side and that part of my mom's heritage whenever I can. Yeah, that's another thing, too, that I think is a commonality is, 
you, well, <clears throat> Micronesia traditionally, well, Micronesia, the Philippines, and Indonesia, uh, before colonialism, have very rich tattooing traditions. Yes, beautiful tattoos. And a lot of it is rooted in, um, not necessarily matriarchal, but they're matrilineally, it's delineated that way, the the styles and, and the stories and what comes behind it and how you get them has a lot to do with your mother's genealogy. Yeah, so uh, that's another... Um, well, that's another thing I think is a, is a commonality between Micronesians and Hawaiians. And I use this term... I don't like to use matriarchal or matrilineal in terms of Hawaiian. Um, I use the term matrifocal. Yeah, um, because so like with Hawaiians, uh, Hawaiian titles, Hawaiian chiefly titles, was inherited through the mother's side. So there was an emphasis on the genealogy of the mother's side because the father, women married, well, women, I don't, I'm just using the term married for convenience, but yeah, women had multiple marriages. And men also had multiple marriages as well. So, but you could track the mother's side. And the mother's side was much more important in terms of your rank. Because that was the determining factor in what your class structure, what class you would belong to. And people forget that Hawaiians had a stratified society. Uh, was it similar with Palau? Um, even to this day, because we still do have traditional titles and and clans have land and people have land and a lot of that has to do with who your mom was even though i don't necessarily say so i'm so i'm from where my mom's from that's what it's supposed to be i don't always say it that way because i really like where my dad's from in palau but the proper way to say where i'm from would be to say well i'm from here because this is where my mother's from the only, like with us, if if I were to inherit a title or my brother were to inherit a title, it would be because, oh, we're this woman's children. Um, whereas I think a lot of people think of like traditional leaders, there's the chief and then his wife. Mm-hmm. Ours is there's the chief and his sister because the wife is the wife. Like she's, she married him. Your title came to you by your your lineage. And so it's... Powerful woman has a son and a daughter. The title next, the next set of titles would go to the son and the daughter, and then the next set of titles would go to the daughter's children, and then her daughter's children. I use matrilineal because it's the easiest way to say it mm-hmm. for us. Not necessarily matriarchal, though. Women do wield power. Men only have power because it was given to them by women. People have differing opinions on like how to describe it. But for me, I've always thought of it, and this is just my point of view, is that I've always thought of Palauan society as being a lot more egalitarian. Mm-hmm. Because there's not that sense of, oh, you're a woman, therefore you're less than a man, or that's a man, he's less than you. Well, yeah, he has less power, maybe, in a sense, but he's not lesser than by because he's a man. I I heard a really interesting description of it that I liked, even though it's kind of controversial, is that we were culturally communists, Mm -hmm. not politically, but culturally, like the roots of the culture 
had to do with we give as we can and we receive according to what we need. And it used to be that way. I mean, obviously, cultures are not static and things kind of evolve and change over time. But I've never gotten the sense as a Palauan woman that somehow I was better than or not as good as a man. Mm -hmm. It was just, you're a woman, do your thing, whatever. I think maybe also Palauan women, like in a sense, I guess they are more powerful, but I don't, it's never felt like something I could lord over people like, oh, I'm a woman, I'm better than you. It was just, I'm a woman, so I should have a good head on my shoulders and be adept at things because I'm a woman, I'm smart, I'm capable. Why would I not be able to do these things? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that's just kind of how I've seen it. And there are people who, their opinions differ from mine. And I do have to deal a lot. And I, growing up and even now, because I grew up outside of Palau, I do still have to deal with the Palauans who don't necessarily think of me as Palauan. So that's like a whole nother talk show. <laughs> and that's basically because you were born in Oregon and you can pass as a non-Palauan. Less the about the passing and more that I was born and raised outside of Palau because a lot of people, and I understand where they're coming from when they think of this, um, So for the most part, if you were born and raised exclusively outside of Palau, the assumption is you wouldn't know anything about Palau. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't speak the language. You aren't, you probably can't eat the food. You're just, you're kind of a hybrid unto yourselves. Like Palau and Americans are their own whole thing versus Palauans versus Americans. But because my upbringing was a little bit different, my sister and I, for most of our lives, we're the only Palauans fully born and raised outside of Palau who spoke, read, wrote, and were functionally Palauan without having ever been there. And so it pre- that presented its own problems for me growing up. I mean, it was great and it was wonderful. And I'm really glad my parents chose this particular um, way to raise us. But it it had its drawback when I was a kid, definitely. Nobody wants to be friends with the kid that all the parents like. <laughs> oh, why can't you be more like Shaw? Yeah. They speak Palawan. They're into the culture. Yeah. yeah. Which is a weird thing for a parent to say to their kid because it was the parent's responsibility to teach them. So I don't know why they would blame their kids for not speaking a language that they were supposed to teach them. Right, but, right. Yeah. But it, yeah, it had its own kind of weird way that it influenced my upbringing and kind of formed how I just, it just kind of formed me as a person. I think almost anyone who kind of grew up between more than one culture can understand not necessarily knowing where they fit Mm -hmm. and trying to find their place in whatever side of things they're on. And for me, it took until I was in my late 20s, early 30s to realize that maybe I didn't fit anywhere specifically and I had to make my own place in that. So, yeah, that's that's my hilarious life story or part of it. <laughs> For people who are mixed uh, Micronesian or are Micronesian 
living in Hawaii in particular. Is there anything you want to say to them? For the love of God, be proud of your heritage. Whatever it is, people will say about where we're from and our people. But if you're willing to take the time to learn about your heritage, your history, and and this, I mean, applies to people all across the Pacific, is that we come from such amazing stock. Our ancestors were amazing people. And the fact that we're all here today is a testament to their ability to survive because that whole era of the world wars, particularly World War II, that didn't treat the Pacific well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us come from people who probably shouldn't have survived it, but they did. And for them to have survived that so that you could be here today says a lot about the kind of people we came from. I feel for the people who who feel like they need to hide what they are because even though I don't necessarily experience it very often, the direct discrimination, I do hear it. I have to listen to it. Part of my job is listening to it. And I can understand how that would be daunting. But at the same time, this is us. This is, this is what we come from. This is, whether we like it or not, our roots. And what's a plant that has no roots? How does a plant thrive that has no roots? Mahalo to Kamehameha Schools for sponsoring the production of this story. Thank you for listening to Native Stories. For those interested, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under user page name Our Native Stories. And check out our website and subscribe to our email list at www. .nativestories.org. Also, stay tuned for our mobile application coming out on Android and Apple stores soon.